Just got to the courthouse. Perfect timing. How are you right. feeling? Good. Yeah. Well, it's just a camping ticket. It ain't nothing really big. Have you had a camping ticket before? Many moons ago. Many moons ago. In Rolla, Missouri. Really? Uh, no. Spokane, Washington. Okay. But so not in Boulder or Denver? No. Hell no. Have you ever been at to this courthouse? Uh-uh. It's your first time? Yeah. How does it feel walk, approaching the doors? It's just another building to me. I got a ticket. That's Leslie Lott, the morning of her court hearing for two tickets violating the city's camping ban. Yeah, it said uh, on, on uh, September 25th yeah. at 8.30. I met her at the Occupy Boulder protests this past August. She was the governor of Camp Free Spirit, an army veteran, and a former truck driver. She's been in Boulder since the beginning of 2020, and before that, she was in Denver for years. I have to put the ticket number. Uh, yeah, yeah. As a kid, she entered the foster system, and since turning 18, she's been on her own. She told me she's never had a traditional home. I've slept in, I, half my life, I slept in vehicles. I slept in tents, campsites, vehicles. Hell, I was homeless driving 18 years. What the hell do you mean? You just sleep in? I just sleep in my truck. Yeah. Yep. I didn't have a house. I didn't have I didn't have nobody to, I didn't have nobody to go to. She was convicted of a felony when she was young. Then she served in the military. After returning from deployment in the Middle East, she bopped around the country before settling in Colorado. Last year, she met her partner Dan in Denver, and they've been together ever since. And I asked this one about it. I'm like, let's just go up to Boulder. And so we, that was our second date, I think. She took me to the Boulder uh, Library, Boulder Public Library downtown. Our first day was Inglewood, Colorado, turd. The library she up there asked me to be with her. Asked me to be her, her mate. Ew. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so. And I, I fell in love with Boulder. I did. But then again, I hadn't been homeless in Boulder. I had just been visiting. And I fell in love with, with the city itself. But over time, I start, we started camping here, and I realized just how shitty Boulder really is. I don't regret coming here, but I do regret... Boulder, essentially what Dan is saying is, Boulder is a very beautiful city, but beautiful if you city, ain't got the money to live here, it's, <laughs> it ain't a, it's not ideal. And this is Unhoused, a podcast collaboration between Boulder Weekly and KGNU. In episode four, we'll take a close look at what it's like living on the streets in Boulder, a city where there are no day shelters, and not only has the number of nighttime shelter beds been reduced over the course of the last year, the criteria for who is eligible to sleep in those beds has also narrowed. That means many feel they have no choice but to sleep outside. There aren't any sanctioned campgrounds for these folks to rest overnight, 
though the unhoused community and their advocates have been asking for one from the city and the Regional Homelessness Mitigation Agency, Homeless Solutions for Boulder County, or HSBC. For years, homeless advocates have argued a reliable and indiscriminate space for people to rest would go a long way in reducing the number of random camps that pop up downtown. Sanctioned encampments are used elsewhere in the country, and dozens of new ones have been created to support the growing unhoused population since the coronavirus pandemic began. As it stands in Boulder County, though, the mere idea of a sanctioned encampment for the unhoused is one that's been loudly and routinely rejected by the larger Boulder community for decades. In fact, concentrated public pressure has motivated elected officials to move in the opposite direction creating stricter anti-encampment policies over the years and intensely enforcing the city's municipal code 5-6-10, the ordinance that criminalizes camping, which gives law enforcement grounds to ticket people for sleeping outside within city limits. I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with Boulder's camping ban, which uh, Denver modeled theirs after, but it uh, essentially, uh, prohibits doing activities of daily living, such as eating or sleeping, um, between dusk and one hour after dawn um, with any kind of shelter. That's David Harrison, a local defense attorney and former representative of the Board of Governors of the Colorado Bar Association. Boulder issues camping tickets at a rate exponentially greater than elsewhere in the state. According to a four-year study done by the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law, for every one camping ticket issued in Denver, 117 were issued in Boulder. As Harrison explains, law enforcement can ticket anyone who's sheltering themselves in Boulder outside overnight, whether that's with a tent or a blanket or a piece of cardboard. It's a bit contentious, and similar camping ban ordinances in other states have been found unconstitutional. Darren O'Connor, the criminal justice chair of Boulder County's NAACP branch, who we spoke with in the first episode, he explains the camping ban as a way to criminalize the act of existing unhoused. So we use enforcement to try to push people out, but as you, as is you know, apparent to anyone who you know, walks the downtown area or the creek or the library uh, as specific examples, it, that's not working. All we're doing is, is criminalizing the very act of living, which, you know, we're in the 10th judicial circuit court uh, for the federal courts here in Colorado. But our neighbors in the 9th circuit in Idaho said that these laws against sheltering yourself, if you don't have access to adequate shelter um, or cruel and unusual punishment. And that just hasn't really been litigated here yet. So until that happens, we're acting as if that's the right way to handle it. When O'Connor looks at the data of how law enforcement implements the camping ban, he says it's one of the ways structural racism is illustrated at play here in Boulder. Black people are represented in our homeless community at 12 times the rate that they are in the general population. So you've got 1% of people in Boulder who are black under, according to the census, and then 12% of those who are homeless are, roughly are black. 
So just looking through a lens of homelessness and who's getting ticketed, that alone says that, that you've got um, a protected class that's being, you know, first of all, they're losing housing at a mo much more disproportionate rate, and then they're being criminalized at a much more disproportionate rate. Both O'Connor and Harrison maintain the camping ban shouldn't be enforced unless there are enough sanctioned, pre-approved places for people to go, whether that's a designated campground or more accessible shelters, given policies like the shelter's new residency requirement that doesn't allow people to use a shelter bed unless they can prove they've been living here longer than six months. As the University of Denver's study concludes, being homeless in Boulder often means nowhere to sleep. Despite this, Kurt Fernhaber, Boulder's Director of Housing and Human Services, he argues the camping ban is necessary for HSBC to do its best work in reducing homelessness. Our, our whole homeless strategy can't work if we don't enforce the camping ban. He says it's an integral part of Boulder's Housing First solution to homelessness, which, as we discussed in episode one, is the idea that the majority of Boulder's homelessness resources should be devoted to securing affordable housing for folks, not making street life easier. He says the camping ban motivates people to engage with their services. And I think there's sort of two philosophies in our city. Um, one is the philosophy that we've been talking about, which is how do you provide services to get people successfully into housing? Um, and the other philosophy is how do you provide services so people can successfully live on the street? Um, and I, I think that those two philosophies um, have a lot of conflict with each other. So Boulder has decidedly embraced the first philosophy. And the second, promoting support for people living on the streets, it no longer receives much funding or attention beyond law enforcement. HSBC has housed a few hundred people over the last three years, but thousands of more have stayed sleeping outside. Attorney David Harrison isn't so sure the strict housing first approach is really working. All cities, so not just Boulder, um, but all cities create programs that are like a, I guess you could say, like a pegboard. And so if you are the perfect little round peg that will fit in the perfect little round hole, then they have a solution for you. But if you have a little spur that comes off your round peg, or if you're a square peg, or a hexagonal <laughs> peg, uh, you're not going to fit in their round hole. And so they say, well, you know, we can't help you, sorry. So there need to be, uh, and this is what makes it hard in my mind, there need to be a million solutions. Many other cities in the U.S. also subscribe to the Housing First strategy, and they're doing it differently than Boulder. When I talked to Steve Berg, the vice president of programs and policy at the National Alliance to End Homelessness, he told me that he sees recurring interactions between unhoused people and law enforcement as a sign that something in a city's homelessness system isn't quite working right. Criminalizing homelessness has never really done any, any good. If, you, if you've got a housing first approach and the programs are good, the, the, the homeless people will know that the programs are good and they'll be crawling over each other trying to get into the programs. Uh, if the, if the, if the people who are homeless don't want to go into the homeless programs, that's probably a good sign that you're 
programs aren't very good. Um, and I know people hate to hear that and they, they get mad when I say that, but you know, part of, again, the part of the housing first approach is really designing a system that's based on what people are homeless want. And if, if, if the programs are there and people don't want to use them, that's probably a sign that you haven't taken that really seriously. Um, and then the other thing is just the criminalization just causes conflict and suspicion between each other. If the, if the, if the police were, you know, working for the, the leaders in the community are arresting people, then the people being arrested are not going to believe that the leaders in the community have their best interests at heart. He says when two groups of people are pitted against each other, it's hard to build trust and foster a mutual vision for a better future. Another example of a city that uses the housing first strategy is Austin, Texas. And for years, the city's dealt with problems akin to Boulder. Rising housing costs, attractive geographies, a seemingly open-minded culture. A similar tug of war has played out there in the community trying to decide how best to treat those who are living on the streets. In 2019, the parameters of Austin's camping ban were reduced after homeless advocates successfully lobbied it was harming the unhoused. In response to the change, homelessness increased by 45%, and that's led the pendulum back the other way, with active campaigns trying to reinstate the full scope of the original camping ban. One big difference, however, is leaders from Austin, Texas are advocating for a stricter camping ban in conjunction with a specific plan on how to manage those who are camping. A political consultant that I talked to from the organization Save Austin Now, a group fighting for stricter camping ban enforcements, he told me sanctioned campgrounds would be, quote, a much better approach. He explained their mission is ultimately about safety, and sanctioned campgrounds would be safer for everyone involved the community who want to play at the parks currently occupied by unsanctioned encampments, the unhoused people trying to escape police threats, and the service providers who could have a centralized place to distribute information, sanitation supplies, and more. But, as I mentioned, there remains a lot of resistance to sanctioned encampments in Boulder. Aaron Brockett, one of Boulder's council members, he was a part of a city-sponsored council field trip to Oregon in 2016. That was when council members were led on tours to examine and observe new homelessness solutions there, which included sanctioned encampments. He says he came back with a lot of energy to pursue new ideas here in Boulder, but when he proposed pursuing more local research, it didn't go so well. We were never able to move forward on that. Even seeing and hearing firsthand examples of success wasn't enough to sway a majority of council into contemplating or researching the concepts further. Oregon, though, has been using sanctioned encampments for years, and it was a particularly helpful tool for the city this summer when it too experienced a surge of people descending into homelessness as the coronavirus pandemic hit. Katrina Holland is the executive director of the nonprofit JOIN, which helped the city of Portland create three new emergency encampments, which she describes as one of the pandemic's silver linings. So there are three. There's one that's called blended camp or block R, um, which is basically available to almost anyone. And then we have affinity camp. So folks who identify as gender non-conforming or queer 
have their own safe space um, and black indigenous and folks of color have a camp that is mainly dedicated to you know them um, so that you know cultural practices and racism and all the other things that traditional shelters or other folks experience who don't identify as white cis heterosexual um, males uh, can have a positive experience and we we did that because you know join and um, a lot of the organizations that participate in this work have been trying to engage in anti-racism work for a while um, and you know gender justice but uh, gender and sexual justice but uh, operating it had been sort of difficult and so we advocated really hard with the city to be able to um, have these affinity camps and it was way way more successful in creating a sense of safety and belonging than we thought it was an incredibly collaborative effort she says there was no way we could do this on our own there's now talks of the camps sticking around even after the pandemic subsides though funding has been the toughest challenge Reporting from the Portland Tribune indicates the three camps altogether cost about $175,000 a month to run, with funding going to the nonprofit JOIN to hire security and maintenance positions, and to fund operational costs for things like garbage services, bathrooms, and handwashing stations. Portland's not the only place that's revisited sanctioned encampments as part of homelessness solution work since the pandemic began. Other major cities like Oakland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles have expanded existing programs into new locations. Then places like Burlington, Vermont, and Denver are in the process of creating encampments within city limits for the very first time. In Denver, they'll be called Safe Outdoor Spaces, and they're being created by the Colorado Village Collaborative, which started its homelessness advocacy work with the successful transitional tiny home village. Hannah Faguet, the manager of the forthcoming Safe Outdoor Space Project, she says the idea of sanctioned encampments has been tossed around in the advocate communities for years, but they were never able to gain much traction. The coronavirus pandemic changed that. But really what was happening when COVID first happened was that the encampments were popping up and they weren't being swept right away. So people, it became more visible to people when in reality, these people already exist, unfortunately. It's just we want to pretend like they don't, you know. The Colorado Village Collaborative began earnest negotiation for safe outdoor spaces with the city of Denver back in April, working closely with city council members and neighborhood constituents, plus the unhoused community members and advocates to create a management plan and service center. I think what made the city open up to the idea a little bit more was the fact that the CDC recommended that sweeps don't happen during COVID. Um, so that was actually part of the recommendation to contain the virus was to keep, you know, keep the encampments where they are and not move people, not displace people. And also the fact that evictions, you know, are continuing to happen and homelessness is on the rise and they are still doing sweeps, but um, we're hoping that in conjunction, like working with the city can like prevent the sweeps from happening or people could actually be recommended to go to a safe outdoor space instead of just being like, hey, you know, get your stuff and get out of here and go somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, the sweeps happen and then people just move a couple blocks away. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. And um, something that has come up a lot is people ask us, well, 
you know, why are you putting money towards this um, when you could be just put, putting money towards housing? Um, and the reality is that the money that would need would be needed for housing is so much more than you would need to function a safe outdoor space. Um, the safe outdoor space would re really just be a place for people to do laundry, to shower, um, to wash their hands, to have like one hot meal a day. They're still intense. Like that's not the goal for people is to, you know, to live in tents. It's just that it's, it's a middle ground until they can move on to housing. Like we will have case management so people can reach out to case managers and try to apply for housing. But the reality is that that doesn't exist right now. Housing doesn't exist. We can open this up in like a couple of weeks as opposed to building an apartment building that could take years, right? Um, so yeah, it's just, it's more of like a quick solution because people do wonder, you know, why not put it into housing and stuff, but it's more so a bridge to that housing, similar to tiny home villages, even though those are more permanent um, mm -hmm. in a way. But yeah, it's, it, COVID was definitely the catalyst for that to, in moving forward in the city to become open for it. I mean, similar to Boulder, you know, Denver, Denver neighborhoods are not um, completely open to the idea. I do think some people are, um, and some people have been really supportive and amazing, but I mean, it's similar to Boulder. You'll, you'll find that contention everywhere. In Boulder, a similar swell of unhoused people congregating downtown has shaken up the conversation. With street homelessness more visible than ever, this summer, both the Housing Advisory Board and the Human Rights Commission again recommended City Council create a sanctioned place for people to camp. I think that most of what I hear in Boulder is that we do want to help humans who need help. And so I'm hoping that that will carry over into seeing you know, people who um, need shelter having a place to have it. That's Rachel Friend another council member here in Boulder, and she's been leading a fresh conversation about how to address the encampment situation. Like the camping's already happening, not the sanctioned part, but um, there's already that gap and it's been happening for decades. So I, I am a fan of um, recognizing the realities and, um, you know, I don't know that it needs to be an encampment that is a forever, you know, get a spot and you can stay here for 10 years because the goal still is housing, um, and that is a solution to homelessness, but can you be there and, and hopefully, um, you know, link up and with services because you're not moving around and you have some stability in your life and, you know, maybe, I, I'm not an expert, so I don't know if there should be a, a you know, expiration date for how long people can stay, but um, I, I think it could it could work with the services. Stability itself is the philosophical foundation of the Housing First model. A safe place of shelter and store belongings can often reduce enough stress to allow someone to figure out what next steps are best for their needs. In working with local leaders in homelessness advocacy, council member Friend is determined to bring a realistic proposal to the table. And as of the time we're recording this episode, they're still in the draft phase. Like the situation in Austin, she says, enforcing the camping ban only makes sense if there's a sanctioned place to go beyond the limited shelter beds. The model that is being proposed, um, you know, has rules and buy-in and, you know, people who are there have to um, agree to, you know, certain 
rules of respecting each other and you know keeping noise down between certain hours and um so my understanding is that there are models of this that are successful sometimes you will see that a crime has been committed by somebody who is unhoused and that crime is held against every person who is unhoused in our community in a way that we don't do with any other demographic basically or most of us don't you know think it's okay to say x people are all right drug addicts or criminals or bike thieves but we as a community um are willing to say that about unhoused members of our community which is um strange to me and disconcerting so i would hope that um assuming that the encampment is successful that the same grace would be shown to people who are unhoused as those of us who are housed and um you know <laughs> none of us are perfect so i don't think we should expect anybody else to be perfect either something like a sanctioned encampment might work really well for people who don't fit in the shelter model but the city is yet to give it a try not like it's easy to live outside and to be in that position so uh, you know it's I don't have the same judgment in my heart towards people who are unhoused. And to be honest, like, I also don't think I'm like, I wouldn't do as well living on the streets as, as people do. Like I have a lot of respect for people who are making it. So what does making it really look like here? And what happens if you can't or don't feel comfortable getting a bed in the shelter? For now, in the absence of local sanctioned sites, Living on the street necessitates interactions with the police department, and that adds additional burdens to the unhoused experience. Like Leslie, you run into the risk of getting ticketed and having to travel to court on a weekday to argue your case. And like Camp Free Spirit, you're subjected to police intervention at any point. There are two officers in the Boulder Police Force that form the department's homeless outreach team. And I spoke with one of them this summer while I was reporting at a homeless encampment downtown. Officer Ross Maynard arrived with a volunteer doctor who was checking in on folks and their medical needs. So, interestingly enough, there's a couple things that have led to homeless outreach teams being in, in police departments. Um, and the big, the first thing is, is that in our society there's this giant unfunded mandate, right, where we have neglected our responsibilities to the least of the members of our society in providing them with adequate health care, adequate mental health services, um, you know, adequate housing, and, uh, and all of that has been shifted onto police departments. He says it's not a perfect system, but it's one that the community has been left to work with at this point. In a perfect world, in an ideal system, our police officers, the ones who are out doing homeless outreach, I don't think so. After Camp Free Spirit was cleared by a police team led by Officer Maynard in August, Leslie and Dan teamed up with some others from the encampment. Remember Angela and Amos, the president and vice president of the movement that we covered in episode one? They all moved their things up to the northern side of Boulder, where there's more green space compared to downtown. Angela and Amos can't use the shelter since they have two service dogs, and Angela uses cannabis, which is banned in the shelter, to treat her epilepsy. Dan, who was the secretary of Camp Free Spirit, has been on the waitlist for housing assistance through mental health partners for months now. 
Leslie, because of her felony, doesn't qualify for many assistance programs like most federally funded public housing. The two don't love staying at the shelter because it's loud and hectic and it isn't particularly comfortable for non-binary people. So, the group set up a few tents and tarps and made a home inside a creek drainage on the backside of a mobile home park. Down the street there's a gas station with water and a bathroom, and a few blocks north is the shelter. They even made friends with the peoples whose backyards face the creek, offering the group blankets and coffee. Then, in September, a cold snap came. Temperatures plummeted overnight as inches of snow fell. An unhoused person died. His name was John Aldridge. He was 57 years old, and he was found the next day, in a church parking lot off Folsom Street, right next to his tent. His core temperature was 75 degrees. When I visited Camp Free Spirit 2.0 the next morning, after the snowstorm, another unhoused person had joined the encampment. He told me to call him Nutcase. What's the past 48 hours been like? What have you all been? Um, cold. Very cold. You're in a t-shirt. Well, it, he's in here. Okay. I was Out. sleeping. Okay. Yeah, we were just snoozing. We snoozing. <laughs> My tent is the one on the very far end. That's all collapsed. Yeah. yeah There's so. one back here, too. Okay. That's his tent. But that one collapsed this morning, too, so that's why I'm in here. With the weight of the mm -hmm. snow. Ours has, not, ours has not yet to collapse. These are expedition tents. Good. These are good tents. Eventually, the snow melted, and then came a late summer heat wave. A few days later, Camp Free Spirit 2.0 was again cleared by the police. They'd been given notice, just like last time, in the form of an eviction slip. But again, they hadn't wanted to leave. And where else were they supposed to go, they wanted to know. The city of Boulder will remove all items and individuals encumbering or obstructing public areas. Any individual who refuses to leave... They'd spent the whole first week of September waiting, tense. No one knew when the police would make their way back. But a pair of officers did, just a few days later, though they were unaware of the eviction notice and instead gave Leslie a ticket for violating the camping ban. And the situation repeated itself yet again the very next day when another set of officers came by, giving Leslie another ticket. A few more days passed before the whole camp was cleared. On the day of Leslie's hearing, I met her at the courthouse. We walked through security, down the hall to the courtroom, and I had to turn my recording device off when we entered, so I'll fill you in from the notes that I took that day. The courtroom was set up with chairs placed in staggered rows, all six feet apart. A giant TV displayed a checkerboard zoom screen filled with prosecutors and other defendants. When Leslie was called to the stand, she took her place in front of a podium set far away from the judge. There was a tablet recording and broadcasting her statements to the others on Zoom. The judge read her rights and explained that if these had been her first camping tickets, he would have just waived them as a warning. But she'd gotten a camping ticket back in 2017, so he wouldn't do that for her. Instead, he advised her to speak with one of the prosecutors, and so she did. We were shuttled into a small room set up with a laptop, and a prosecutor's face popped up on the screen. He examined Leslie's two tickets, then looked up at her and said, simply, he'd be recommending a dismissal of both cases. Neither of the timestamps on the tickets fell between the hours of night, aka between sunset and one hour after sunrise, 
So turns out the officers had no grounds to issue either of the tickets. We went back to the courtroom and the judge officially dismissed both cases. Leslie was sent on her way and that was that. Yay, I'm free to go. Yay! What does that what does that actually mean? What what are you free to? I'm free from a camping ticket which is still BS. The fact that Leslie got her tickets dismissed is not uncommon. It's something that attorney David Harrison often uses to justify his position that the camping ban, as it's working right now, is doing more harm than good. According to his research, nearly four-fifths of camping tickets are eventually dismissed, and even more so now that the coronavirus pandemic has led the county sheriff to reduce jail populations even further by not jailing anyone for municipal violations like camping or trespassing. Well, if you have an ordinance that the, the, the cases are dismissed 78% of the time, whether it's because they were wrongly filed or um, a jury decides the person wasn't guilty, uh, then that seems like kind of a bad ordinance. I mean, why are they hassling people if 78% of them are going to be found not guilty? After leaving the courthouse, Leslie and I took a walk down the Boulder Creek path. Hey, did you know the gentleman that passed away two weeks ago? Oh. John Aldridge? John Aldridge, that sounds familiar. Yeah, he was found really cold the night of the snow. I've heard of him. I'm not too familiar with him. Okay. Are you ever afraid of that happening to you? No, not really. I know how to survive. I know how to survive in the cold. I live in Chicago. <laughs> That's I right. live in Seattle and Washington. We kept walking, and as we approached the statue of Chief Niwat, Leslie abruptly stopped, staring at the crouched figure captured in a metallic sculpture. Oh, every time I walk by here, you gotta pay your respect to this guy. Okay, show me how you pay your respect. Because every, every, every time you pass by him, mm -hmm. that's Niwat. You always gotta pay your respect. You gotta pay your respects to him. Hold this. Yeah. Watch this. I will. This guy was homeless. He used to own all this. Well, I don't know about own. He used to be here. Yeah. And people put stuff in there like offerings and stuff. Chief Niwat. Chief Niwat of the Southern Arapaho used the area along the Boulder Creek near the foothills of Boulder for his winter campground. The Southern Arapaho and Chief Niwat were forced from this area by gold seekers in 1858. He always strove for peace. He was killed at the Sand Creek Massacre November 27, 1864. That's why I always pay my respects and everybody should too if they understand what he's done yeah. because this guy here that's how I pay my respects you know up next on unhoused we'll look at alternative and transitional dwellings like tiny homes and how they can provide new affordable housing solutions that are both space and cost efficient 
not to mention much quicker to build than a traditional complex of affordable units. Stay tuned and we'll look at what it would take to reverse years of zoning policies and public opinion that have prevented new tiny homes from being built in Boulder. We created this show as an extension of six written articles, which you can find at boulderweekly.com. The Unhoused podcast is a collaboration between Boulder Weekly and KJNU, and you can subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts. The series editor is Angela K. Evans, and audio production for this episode was done by Maeve Conran. I'm Emma Athena, and thanks for listening. <laughs>